wish to attract higher levels of good health, personal and interpersonal relationships, and a deeper connection with spirit, you've tuned in at the right time and to the right place. This is Awakened Hearts with Rebecca and Boyd Campbell. In our program, we'll provide intuitive readings, insight, and guidance to help you connect with spirit and experience more from life. Now, here are your hosts, Rebecca and Boyd Campbell. Welcome, everyone. We are thrilled that you have joined us again today. We are your hosts, Rebecca Campbell. And Boyd Campbell. And you are listening to Awakened Hearts on the 7th Wave channel of Voice America Talk Radio. You can contact us by email, hello at sundrahealing.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, connect with us on LinkedIn, add us on Google+, and of course, visit our website, sundrahealing.com. Today we have Dr. Arthur Sarah McCauley with us, and he is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is also the chief medical officer of soundminds.org. He has appeared on CNN, Fox News, uh, New England Cable News, Good Morning America Weekend, all kinds of television and radio shows. And he has also authored several books, the latest of which was just released in June of this year. It is called The Stress Solution, and that is what we are going to be focused on today. Welcome, Arthur. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rebecca and Boyd. Glad to be with you. Yeah, wonderful to have you. You know, Stress is something that it seems like everybody is always dealing with nowadays. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think having uh, tools that we can use to help us cope with that is is obviously extremely important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the stress rates uh, really have increased throughout the last few years. But even in, in recent months, we know from a recent study that was done by the American Psychological Association that stress has really increased dramatically in this presidential race. And what I try to focus on the book, in the book, Rebecca, is that stress is primarily, pursued, that is primarily produced by the way we perceive. You know, we all experience some levels of stress in our daily lives, but when we experience it on a consistent basis, it's because the way we perceive is not accurate. You know, we learn certain biases and distortions about ourselves early in life and about how we perceive other people early in life. And unless we unlearn some of that distorted old bias thinking that's based on early conditioning, we distort reality and we cause unnecessary tension. So I try to accent in the book a great deal that being able to perceive accurately is, the, is critical to reducing stress. Hmm. hmm. And is it, is it difficult to do? Is it difficult to change the way we are perceiving things? Well, I, I think it, it, it demands some discipline, and that's why this book is more of a workbook. You know, I ask people at the end of each chapter to do some work, and I ask them to read the book slowly, not quickly. Um, and at the end of each book, at the end of each chapter, I ask which um, of the clients that I talk about, who do you identify with, and which cognitive distortions that you identify with, like generalizing or black and white thinking or catastrophizing, mind reading, magnifying, all ways that we have of distorting what we see. And we know based on the past, we all have ways of, you know, when we're hurt or we're slighted in the past, those slights tend to stay with us so that that we carry them forward. And we often see 
old faces on new faces, that we're projecting forward some of our past experiences onto new people, and unfairly, of course, we don't always realize we're doing that, but if we're disciplined and we learn how to slow down and, and perception, and that's where empathy comes in, because empathy really slows down us enough. It's not, it slows down us in our way of interacting so that we're not reacting quickly. And it, it allows us to produce natural chemicals that create calm, focused energy so that we can perceive accurately and shed some of the biases of our distorted thinking. Hmm. So is that what you're referring to when you say empathic CBT? Yes, empathic CBT is, is the combination of the power of empathy, brain science, and cognitive behavioral therapy. It's sort of the best of all three worlds. Cognitive behavioral therapy ba- basically focuses on distorted perceptions and in some of the ways that I just mentioned a moment ago. And empathy really is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another person. And when we slow down, and empathy is, is really slows us down to focus on the facts, it's often confused with sympathy. You know, sympathy rushes in quickly to console without really having many of the facts and not being so objective. And mm-hmm. empathy slows down a process so that we, we are really focused on understanding the truth of what we're perceiving and what situations we're in. And when you combine that with cognitive behavioral therapy, we produce some of the the chemicals that are near magical chemicals that we can produce by giving and receiving empathy. You know, we produce the, the hormone oxytocin when we give and receive empathy, which is a near miracle neurotransmitter. It's really the opposite of the stress hormone cortisol. And when we produce oxytocin, we reduce anxiety and cortisol levels. It helps you live longer. It aids in recovery from illness and injury. It promotes a sense of calm and well-being. It increases generosity. It protects against heart disease. It modulates inflammation. Importantly, it reduces craving for addictive substances. And it creates bonding and an increased trust in others. And it decreases fear and allows us to feel secure so that we can be vulnerable in a sense and, in essence, open for love, open to be close to other people. When we're stressed, the opposite happens. And this is what I try to accent in the book, that we produce different chemicals depending on how we're perceiving. When we're stressed, we produce the stress hormone cortisol, which limits our capacity for empathy. And cortisol, if it's in our system on an ongoing basis, can be very damaging. It causes negative thinking. It causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss. It breaks down muscle tissue. It causes flabbiness, depression, anxiety. And it even kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. And one of the unknown factors is that also cortisol throws off blood sugar levels in the body, which enlarges fat cells and, con- and contributes to weight gain. So when, when we're relating with stress, we produce cortisol and all the negative aspects that it contributes to in our body. When we're relating with empathy, when we give and receive empathy, we produce this, this chemical oxytocin, which protects us from cortisol and makes us feel closer and more secure with other human beings. Wow. Hmm. I never thought of it in, in the, the chemical aspect of what's actually happening inside mm-hmm. the body when we're experiencing these things. Yeah, and I think when people realize that, you know, I, I have a chapter in the book, as you know, it's called The Soul's Pharmacy, which is that we produce these brain chemicals on our own. 
You know, so it depends on how we're relating. When we slow down and relate with empathy and we know how to listen empathically, we're entering beyond the sur- we're entering into the soul and heart of another human being. We're seeing beyond the surface. Empathy allows us to get beyond the surface and see into the motivations and character of another person. And I think when we do that, we, you see when people have high levels of empathy, they're able to relate to a diverse group of people because they don't only judge people by the color of the skin or their religion or which part of the country they live in or which part of the world they come from. When you get beyond the surface and look into the heart and soul of other human beings, you realize that you know basically we're all, we're all far more alike than we are not alike. All human beings mm-hmm. have pretty much the same longings and desires. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you're from or anything. That's the way it is for us. Yes, Boyd, it, it really doesn't matter where we're from because, again, if, if we're not using empathy and, and if we're stressed, our thinking becomes very narrow if, and we use a lot of black and white thinking. And we judge people on the surface without really knowing who they are. And when, we're, when we slow down the process and when we truly know how to use empathy, it encourages people to be open with us and we find out more about who they are. We find out about who, who they are in an in-depth way, not, not based on how they look or how their resumes read. Right. Hmm. Yeah, they actually get to take their mask off probably too, I would assume, and show yeah. who they really are. Yeah. Yes, and you know, people always tell me when, when I get referred to someone oh, that she'll never talk or he'll never talk, and the truth is that when you know how to listen in an empathic way, human beings really can't resist talking because once you listen in that way, you're creating a level of safety and you're releasing the, the hormone oxytocin, which is what women produce when they're pregnant. It allows you to bond with a, ch- a baby. And this is called the love or connecting hormone. And when you can produce that in your brain and in someone else's brain, people will talk because all human beings want to be understood. And if we don't communicate, we can't be understood. Hmm. So is this in pill form yet? <laughs> it, it's uh, it's, it's a, in our it's, soul pharmacy. It, it's an internal pill, Boyd. It's one that we can make on our own. Just as we're having this conversation, you know, as as we're going back and forth with each other, and we're engaging each other in a reasonable way, and we slow down enough to listen to each other, we are changing our neurochemistry. If I was talking loudly, or you were yelling back at me, we would produce cortisol. And what would cortisol do? It would produce that narrow, black and white, repetitive thinking. It would make us feel more insecure with each other. And we would not see much more than what we see on the surface or what we hear on the surface. So we would not get to know each other very much. Mm, That makes sense. Well, and I love the fact that we do have control over this. And it's something that that we can solve ourselves without having to go and get the pills, the pills. right? The, the medications, the prescriptions yes. as yes. often. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Well, once, you, once you learn how to do this and, and it, it, it does take practice, it, it's a discipline. It's asking yourself every day, am I talking more or am I listening more? Am I, is my voice picking up and can I hear myself talking in a rapid way? Am I feeling anxious? How do I calm myself down so I can actually engage this person? And, you know, whenever we look at another human being, even if we don't know them, a thousand things go through our minds about who we think they are. And when we slow down the process, we realize that I don't really know who you are. I have to listen enough, ask open-ended questions, and find out who you are and put my prejudgments aside. 
and even put my judgments aside of myself. You know, people come into the world thinking, come into adulthood thinking so many things about themselves that are untrue. I mean, I, I always try to teach people that early in life, we create a novel, a fictitious story about ourselves that we write. It's based on what we think is being reflected back to us from those around us, as if we're looking at ourselves in a mirror. But if the mirrors you're looking into are cracked or inaccurate, you get a distorted view of yourself as if you're looking in a circus mirror. Hmm. So as a result, we create an inaccurate story about ourselves and, and others, and this story sets the stage for an irrational belief system. And we can't change our story alone. We're all too subjective. We need a group of people in our lives that will give us honest feedback so that we can obtain an accurate view of ourselves, who we are today, a more objective account than the one we came to believe early in life about earlier in life about ourselves and about other people. Hmm. Perfect. We are going to take this moment to go to our break, and we are going to see everybody on the other side at two minutes. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Rebecca and Boyd have combined their years of experience to create a powerful and effective modality of healing. Each session is unique, tailored to your individual needs, and can be done in person or from any distance. Are you searching for your purpose, soul path, soulmate, or healing for mind, body, and spirit? Are you seeking relief from anxiety, depression, chronic illness, fatigue, or codependency? Book a healing session or receive a free email consultation today. Visit the services page at sunderhealing.com. Rebecca and Boyd have combined their years of experience and their twin flame connection to create powerful, transformational journeys through their classes, workshops, special events, and retreats. Join Rebecca and Boyd on your journey to deepen your connection with spirit and access divine intelligence. This allows healing, creates miracles, and manifests a life of joy and abundance in alignment with your highest good. Visit the classes page of sunderhealing.com and register today. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. You are listening to Awakened Hearts. To call in and connect to Rebecca and Boyd Campbell on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to hello at sunderhealing.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. We have Dr. Arthur Sir McCauley here with us today, and we are talking about his new book, The Stress Solution. And this book really is written in, in a workbook, workbook format, and so it's something that uh, you, know, you can find the tools and the exercises of how to develop and use empathy and the cognitive behavioral therapy to reduce anxiety and to develop resilience and to balance the hormones that our bodies are releasing. And this is fascinating. Uh, we're just loving this talk today, Arthur. Well, thank you, um, Rebecca. <clears throat> yeah. And Boyd has a question for you. Yeah, we're, when we were at the break here, we were talking about the presidential candidacy and um, how their stress levels are, are raising. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I'm wondering... How come? Why is this happening to people? What, 
what causes us to drease so dramatically? Well, I think a couple of things that even before the, the presidential race, Boyd, that studies are indicating that Americans have fewer friends, trust has decreased, as well as empathy, while prejudice and narcissism has increased. Mm-hmm. So, you know, half of Americans were, were indicating that they wake up at night due to stress physiologically, physiologically, or, or emotionally. And 75% of people were saying that they experienced stress on a daily basis. So the society was already stressed because I believe we, we've become a society where we place a great deal of emphasis on achievement, status, and appearance, what I call performance addiction, and far less on character and relationships. You know, and, and our political climate with presidential candidates' emphasis on aggression, insults, lying, lack of integrity, is symbolic of the de-emphasis of the importance of character and empathy, currently mm-hmm. dominating our elected officials. And, and obviously, it's dominated the corporate world for some years as well. And it's had a tremendous influence on our society. So, you know, one in five Americans say that they ex- suffer from extreme stress daily. And 75% of all visits to primary care physicians in the last 18 months have, have been due to stress. So we're not in a good position, and we, we lack emphasis on authenticity and goodness and character and integrity. We've, we've seen these attributes as less important than getting ahead, making more money in our very materially driven, appearance-driven society. And I think the, the presidential campaign has, has been symbolic of that, that are we hearing anything of substance or are we hearing two people or four people or ten people basically insult each other on a regular basis, which is a deterioration of character. Yeah, that's very, very true. Mm-hmm. A lot of people get caught up in, the, in those emotions behind that as well. It raises, causes anger. A lot of, a lot of negative stuff comes from those um, accusations and stories yeah, ac- is what I call and, them. And accusations not based on fact and, that, and that's what yeah. I think empathy does really it slows us down to understand empathy uses the thinking part of the brain not the emotional part of the brain and tries to slow us down and instead of digesting sound bites every day find out what the truth is you, you know you be your own critical thinker you have faith in your own ability to understand what's happening and you know we hear percentages of Republicans Democrats saying 75% of Democrats do this or 50% of uh, Republicans do so-and-so. And, And, you know, do you actually know where these studies come from? Do you actually know what the facts are? A lot of it is just manipulative jargon to try to get you to vote a certain way or to think a certain way. But we have to get back to a society that emphasizes character integrity far more than achievement, status, and appearance. And if we don't do that, we continue to go down this very negative road where you can't really run for presidential office unless you're, you're insulting the opponent and digging up uh, as much dirt on the opponent's side as you can, which is a terrible model for young children, a terrible model for adolescents and young adults. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's for sure, for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm wondering how... Um, how can we rid of ourselves of these negative uh, stories that are being told? Um, how can we prevent ourselves from taking that on? And I'm assuming also that this, you know, we're talking about the, the candidacy here, but um, I'm sure that the, the tools you have in your book are going to apply to um, everyday situations in our life, work, play, love, all of those. 
It, yes, it, it not only uh, relates to what's happening today in our current society in this current presidential climate, Boyd, but it, re, it is, is a workbook to teach people how to slow down and to develop accurate perceiving of others and of themselves. And, you know, as I mentioned, we all write a novel about ourselves early in life, and I believe it's our responsibility as adults to rewrite that story and make it a nonfiction story. We all grow up with biases and prejudice about others and ourselves. Nobody grows up in a completely objective environment. So we have to admit and acknowledge that we have biases toward ourselves and toward others, but how do we learn to perceive accurately? If we're moving too fast, if we're reacting too quickly, we're not gonna be able to do that. But the, the trusting foundation that empathy creates changes our brain chemistry. It calms our soul and it puts us in a position to listen. And then we can open up and take in what we need to hear in order to rewrite our story and correct distorted thinking. And only then can we become really who we're destined to be. So, Arthur, do we need to talk about the past in order to reduce our stress and anxiety levels currently? Is the past somewhere that we need to go to? Well, you know, the only time, Rebecca, I think it's necessary to focus on the past is if it's interfering with the present. Otherwise, it's not necessary to explore. But once we understand the origin of our old conditioning and how our past can create distorted views of ourselves and others, we can begin the process of perceiving others and ourselves more accurately. So if the past is interfering what you're seeing, meaning, that's my comment earlier, if you're putting old faces on new faces, then yes, you need to explore the past, and that's where empathy is very helpful. Because when you are giving and receiving empathy with friends or with people close to you or family members, you can take in feedback about yourself to rewrite that story and realize where your biases come from in the past. You know, understanding where our biases come from is one step, but then re readjusting so that we can perceive more accurately today is the most important step. So if the past is interfering with the present, I would say yes, we need to talk about it. We need to explore it. You know, at the end of every chapter in this book, I have a take action segment, which I ask you to do some work and actually share it with somebody close to you so that you can get and receive feedback about whatever the issue is of that particular chapter. Because changing our story and uncovering some of the past that is disturbing our, our views of ourselves and others in the present, we can't do it alone. We're all too subjective. We need the help of other people. And in, and in good friendships, you know, good friendships, we, we tell people what they need to hear, not what, want, what they want to hear. That's what a good friend does. That's what a good spouse does. Hmm. Authentic sounding board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an authentic sounding board. And I have a chapter on authenticity in the book because authenticity creates an inner calm and it allows us to actualize our potential and it frees us up from the energy and the stress of pretending. You know, when, when you're always trying to please other people and you're trying to do what you think they want you to do, uh, and when we substitute our natural personality for one that's trying to please to gain acceptance and love, it's a failing proposition because pretense is a burden that's depleting. It also makes it difficult to maintain intimacy because closeness to others is ba based on being able to be open and genuine and vulnerable. And authenticity attracts others in powerful ways and allows us to feel comfortable in our own skin. 
and it makes other people feel comfortable too that they can make some mistakes. They don't have to be perfect. They can just relate to us as they are. And authentic relating, most importantly, it enlivens the spirit and gives us the energy and confidence to go out into the world, tolerate stress, and maintain resilience so that we can come home with our self-respect and integrity intact. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious. Uh, when I when I teach classes, and when the people come in, I got probably 15 people sitting around the table, and you can see everybody's kind of all scrunched up and got their walls up and everything. And um, within uh, probably about 15 minutes, we, we do a little bit of sharing and stuff. And I share my story, and I'm very open and vulnerable when I do this. And um, I'm assuming this is part of what you're talking about, um, because shortly after that, one person will share, and then the next one, the next one, the next one. Yeah. And within an hour, it's almost like one big family. And the stuff that's coming out and being shared is, you, know, you, you would never do that out in a different environment. Yeah. Well, you're, you're opening up, Boyd, and, and you're not pretending. You're being authentic and genuine, and you're not projecting perfectionism. You're saying, hey, here's my story. I've suffered. I've, I've gone through some difficulties. This is the human being that I am. You know, my history is part of who I am. You know, I had an experience in one of my group therapy sessions on Friday morning where one of the women, uh, she's a CFO, and, and she always comes into the group very put together and speaks very slowly and meticulously. And, and, um, and one of the couple of the people said, you know, you, we, never we never really get a sense of who you are. It just seems like you're somebody who, you know, went to Harvard, grew up with a trust fund. You know, you, you dress so perfectly, you speak so perfectly. And she started to tear. And she started to tell this story that as a teenager, both her parents were addicts. She left her home at 15. She lived at two different foster homes, then a third foster home. By the time she was 20, she was finally adopted by a family. And then she went to college. She had to take out a lot of different loans, work three jobs to get through school. And she was sobbing as she was telling this story. She said, because I never wanted, any, I never wanted anybody to know this about me because I didn't want them to think I was like trailer trash. And then one of the guys leaned over and he said, you know, it's amazing to me, he said, because I really thought you came from a totally different background because of the way you act and you always seem so controlled. He said, but this is the first time I've really felt so close to you because you're really revealing who you are. And he said, it's remarkable that you've become who you are given the circumstances and the suffering that you've endured. She thought that would make people reject her. So she's never really revealed it. She always keeps it close to herself. Nobody really knows her. Nobody could get beyond the surface. But you see, once she was vulnerable, as you're describing you are when you teach these courses, Boyd, that she opened the door for other people to be vulnerable. And, and interestingly, they all saw the strength of vulnerability, that it brings mm. people closer. It doesn't, when we reveal who we are, because we're all imperfect, we, we allow people to sit in the family room with us, not, not so much in, the in, in, a, in a, a stiff sort of environment where we don't feel comfortable and we think we have to act accordingly. This sort of lowered the expectations of people not having to be pro projecting a certain way of being that they could just be whoever they are. And the group went on as people, one person disclosed more about themselves as another did, just as you were describing. Very nice. I think I got just got a big dose of oxycodone because I, oxytocin. <laughs> oxytocin. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, I got goosebumps when you were talking there. It was a lot of very positive. Well, and how beautiful it is that her perception of her story was that it would be uh, a hindrance or people would reject her, but in actuality, it's an inspiration to others yeah. because of yeah. what she's achieved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Well, we're going to go to another break. For our listeners out there, if you need something to do in the next two minutes, you can pop on our website and check out the spirit animal message. We still have the dove as our message until the new moon this weekend. So check that out, and we will see you back here on the other side of two minutes. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Rebecca and Boyd have combined their years of experience and their twin flame connection to create powerful, transformational journeys through their classes, workshops, special events, and retreats. Join Rebecca and Boyd on your journey to deepen your connection with spirit and access divine intelligence. This allows healing, creates miracles, and manifests a life of joy and abundance in alignment with your highest good. Visit the classes page of sunderhealing.com and register today. Rebecca and Boyd have combined their years of experience to create a powerful and effective modality of healing. Each session is unique, tailored to your individual needs, and can be done in person or from any distance. Are you searching for your purpose, soul path, soulmate, or healing for mind, body, and spirit? Are you seeking relief from anxiety, depression, chronic illness, fatigue, or codependency? Book a healing session or receive a free email consultation today. Visit the services page at sunderhealing.com Be visionary This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel You are listening to Awakened Hearts To call in and connect to Rebecca and Boyd Campbell on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to hello at sunderhealing.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. We have Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley here with us today, and we've been talking about his newest book, The Stress Solution, and we've really been focused on empathy and how we can learn to use empathy to completely change our body's reaction to the situations and the circumstances around us and to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Now, before we went to the break, just wanted to see what we were at here. Boyd, did you want to ask your next? Yeah, yeah you mentioned prejudice um, being a cause of stress in your book. Mm-hmm. How, how does prejudice um, cause stress? Well, whenever we encounter someone who we have an inherent prejudice against, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we begin to experience a degree of stress. And when we're stressed, we release the stress hormone cortisol, as we were talking about before, which limits our capacity for empathy. And and that's a very important point. So when we're stressed, we release cortisol. But when we're feeling prejudice, you know, if you're sitting next to someone on an airplane or a bus, and you immediately look at them and you feel uncomfortable, you're going to start to experience stress and release cortisol. And what happens when we release cortisol in, in the face of stress is it limits our capacity for empathy, meaning that it limits our ability to see beyond the surface. So we start to think that whatever we're imagining about that person is true. 
and cortisol causes repetitive negative thinking. And if you have prejudices against several types of people, it's likely that your cortisol levels will be consistently high. And you know, as I spoke about before, it not only causes negative thinking, it causes weight gain, inflammation, hair loss, and so forth. And it actually contributes to killing neurons in the memory center of the brain. So it's a very negative hormone if it's, it's secreted in excess. But when we're prejudiced, people don't realize it. You know, and even prejudice toward yourself. When we have a prejudice toward yourself, when you think you're not intelligent, when you are, you think you're not attractive, when you are, you think you don't speak well, but you do. And you know we all grow up with these prejudices about ourselves and about others. You know, one of the, I, I wrote a chapter on prejudice, as you both know, in the book, and I was so happy that my publisher agreed to do that because, you know, I shared about 10 or 12 statements that people made uh, to me in, in the privacy of my office, of course, because over time, you know, people come to trust me and they just say what they think. And these are all good people. These are, these are not people that really are, are naturally prejudiced. Is, is that they've, they've grown up believing certain things. One of the first statements I, I wrote about in the book is one of my clients, um, I had the window open in my office and a dog was barking outside. And we were talking about athletics or something to that matter. And he mentioned, he said to me, oh, you know, dogs don't like black people. I said, really, what makes you think they don't like black people? He goes, I don't know, it's something about the smell. And I said, well, how did you come to understand this? And he said, oh, you know, we had a black family who lived on the corner of our street, and we had two dogs, and my mother always said, don't, don't take the dogs down to the corner of the street because the dogs don't like black people. Now, I'm talking to a 56-year-old CFO, and I said to him, so have you ever actually been in the presence of a black person with a dog? He said, well, no. I said, so how do you know that that's true? Well, we all knew that was true in the neighborhood. I said, but you, you're telling me that you've never actually had the experience of being in the presence of a black person with a dog. I said, I have an uncle who's an African-American, and we call him the dog whisperer. He has two dogs, and he trained our two dogs, and dogs love him. He said, really? He said, now you're making me feel silly. I said, you know, I'm not trying to make you feel silly. I'm just trying to help you understand some of the distortions you grew up with and some of the prejudices that you grew up with that aren't based on objective truth. That's just one example of many. And this person is not somebody, again, who's inherently prejudiced, but he just grew up with that idea and never examined it in his life. Yeah. Hmm. It's amazing, right? It's amazing when you hear that story and you think, well, come on, it can't be that hard to examine stuff like that. But we all have those things that we're yeah. just very unaware of. Subconscious. Yeah, within yeah. ourselves. And, and if we're not in an empathic interchange, which he and I are, do, do experience, where you know, we have that relationship with each other, that idea was able to come forward without any embarrassment. He just said it naturally. And there's a number of other things that people say. And, of course, a number of things we say to ourselves that are truly inherent prejudices that have never been examined. You know, a lot of times people tell me, well, I, I want to come and talk to you because I want to I fix what's wrong with me. And I, and, I, and I tell them that, you know what's most important? Instead of f- focusing on fixing what's wrong with you, why don't we try to uncover what's right with you? Mm. Why don't we try to uncover that natural, basic goodness that you were born with? That, that you can't feel right now because it's covered over with certain hurts that you experienced early in your life. You know, when we have disappointments or emotional pain, 
it programs our brain to jump to conclusions very quickly about ourselves and others, and, and, and especially when we sense similar circumstances to the past. You know, I, I was not a great student when I was a young, a young person, and it's funny, I was asked to speak a few years ago at a university, and it was in the School of Education, and, and basically I was speaking about bias, bias thinking and, and how to train yourself to perceive more accurately. And they asked me, they said, well, you know, we're, you're not going to be on for about 15 minutes. Would you like a coffee? I said, sure, maybe a cup of coffee. And they said, why don't you go sit in that room there? That's where, that's where we do the student teaching. So I went in the room, and you had all the little desks with the little extensions where you put your books and, and write. And I was sitting in that room, and I started to get anxious because it was, rem- was making me remind me <laughs> being in elementary school. And I felt uncomfortable. And I got up and I started walking around in the halls and the dean came up to me and he said, well, you don't have to walk around. We're still not ready for you. I said, no, 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 it's okay. I I really don't want to go back in that classroom. And I began to talk with my own bias because my memory of not feeling comfortable in those years in school, sitting in those little desks, I, I started to think about it and I didn't want to be anxious before I spoke. Now here I am, I'm a clinical psychologist with all these years of experience, but it still came back to me. And I had a laugh about it, and, and I think that's probably what we need to do. We need to have a little sense of humor when we catch ourselves going back in time and realizing that I'm not that kid that you know felt he wasn't so intelligent and didn't belong in an academic environment and so on and so forth. I've rewritten part of the story, but isn't it funny that it came back? And it comes back for all of us, but we have to catch ourselves. You know, that's when you, when you both were asking me earlier, how do you do this? You know, you, well, it's kind of a training ourselves that knowing those old records that we play about others in ourselves. And instead of playing all 23 songs, we have to press the stop button and say, oh, you know, this is what I normally do. I, I see a tall man who looked like my ex-husband. I automatically think such and such. Or I see a, a woman who used to be my boss who I didn't like or felt, you know, didn't treat me well, and I automatically think that that person's like that person. Or I find out this person's from the South, or this person's Episcopal, or that person's Jewish, or this person's a Muslim, and I think this, that, and the other thing. Slowing it all down and realizing these are all familiar records. Don't play the whole album or the whole CD. Catch yourself and then ask yourself, you know what, I'm going to try to find out the truth. I'm going to find, try to find out what this person is really about. And I'm not going to make any assumptions. And that's when we truly begin to engage other people. So do you um, offer these exercises um, to, I consider, raising your awareness of yourself, becoming more aware of your um, programmed responses to situations? I'm, I'm assuming you have this help in your book. Yes, boy, you know, I, the reason that I ask people to do journaling at the end of each chapter and to focus on the stories that I t- tell in each chapter and, some of the, and each chapter has certain principles that we're exploring, like empathic listening, I ask, you know, do you listen that way? What interferes with your listening? What kind of cognitive distortions do you use that interferes with your listening? Can you get together with someone close to you and truly try this method out and see and ask for feedback as to how well you're doing? So... You know, change is an active process. We, we, can't, we can't just think about it. We can't just read about it. And we can't do it alone because we're all too subjective. We have to engage in relationships with other people and practice it. And then it starts to change. Like, for instance, in the chapter on empathic listening, I ask people to learn how to ask open-ended questions. 
You know, why? Because open-ended questions put preconceptions aside while they express true interest in the other person's perspective. It's sort of like asking when you, a mother asks her teenage daughter, honey, do you really think your date was cute? Well, you might ask, how was your evening with your new date? Because most questions are statements that people don't have the courage to make. Well, when the mother said, how do you really, how do you, do you think your date was cute? She means, I didn't think he was cute. And, and the daughter knows that, and now she's going to feel resistant and not want to talk to her mother. So closed-ended questions slam the door on inquiry and curiosity. Open-ended questions, people know when you're asking an open-ended question. It means that I really want to learn about you. I, I don't know about you, and I, I really want to learn what you're about, and I'm asking a question for information. I haven't made any prejudgments. And in, in that chapter, I also focus on the second step of slowing down because empathy slows things, slows things down so that emotions can be tempered with thoughtful reflection. So when you slow down, you ask open-ended questions. And the third step is to avoid snap judgments. Empathy does not, rec- does not categorize based on past experiences but sees human beings as always changing and evolving. So when you avoid snap judgments, you're saying, look, uh, you may have been a Republican 10 years ago, but I don't know if you still are. Maybe you're a Democrat. Maybe you have a different view of the theater and you like it today when you didn't used to like it. We're always evolving and changing. So, you know, I I get nervous when I interview a a marital couple and they say, oh, I know him by like the back of my hand. I don't even have, he doesn't even have to finish the sentence. Hmm. Well, that may be true to a certain degree, but we change. We evolve. We age. We have different perspectives, especially if we're growing and learning people. So when you think you know someone that well, it's kind of dangerous because then you can stop listening and stop learning and you give the other person the feeling that, you know, I'm not really interested in, in, in hearing what you have to say because I, I already know what you're going to say. And, and that's a dangerous perspective. So we try to avoid those snap judgments and try to avoid presuming that you know what another person is thinking, even if you're very familiar with them. And another step is to learn from the past. You know, we need to understand our past so that our theories and old patterns don't interfere with understanding and perceiving. And if you're unaware of your old biases from the past, your ability to perceive accurately will be compromised. You know, for instance, if you have a fear of anger because your father had a short temper, and then you may be overly sensitive to people you encounter who are passionate, but they're not angry. So every time someone's voice elevates, you think they're angry and you want to kind of shun them and move away from them, but all they're doing is being passionate about what they're talking about. So, you know, in terms of the earlier point, the question you were asking me, Boyd, we need to learn from our past when it interferes with the present, and for for all of us, that all happens to some degree. Mm -hmm. Now, Arthur, is there something that's missing in our society that so many... Uh, of the successful people uh, we would consider successful people are still leading lives where they feel very unsatisfied you know I think Rebecca I I coined the term in a book that I wrote a few years ago performance addiction and I think many Americans suffer from it I think uh, performance addiction is the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect It's an irrational belief system that's learned from early familial experiences. It's learned in your family, but it's reinforced by a material appearance-driven society. In my first recognition of performance addicts came about largely as a result of my work with a group of people who embodied so many of the qualities that are highly regarded in professional and public life, but their resumes 
Their resumes are very impressive, but I noticed despite their capabilities, they seem to have little regard for their personal achievements or their own physical appearance. They all seem to be what I call scoreboard watchers. Every day they take inventory of how well or how terribly they're performing or how attractive or dreadful they look in the mirror. And they also tend to not really employ empathy very much, so they form a lot of relationships based on what I call image love. You know, empathy empathy is the heart of the relationship skills needed to help people who think this way, performance addicts, move past what I call image love to real love. And performance addicts have tremendous difficulty loving. They base their own lovability on their daily performance, the scoreboard watcher. And unfortunately, they expect the same of their partner. So they're constantly comparing and contrasting themselves and their partners to others, and they find it easy to fall in love, but they find it very difficult to know how to maintain love, to maintain close friendships. They, they talk about having many, many friends, but really they have many, many acquaintances because they don't go very deep into the heart and soul of relationships with other people, and they don't let themselves be very known because of what we were talking about earlier. We've come to a point where we value achievement and appearance more than integrity and character. And when we do that, many people are doing it because they think unconsciously that's what's going to bring them love and respect, which is what we all want. You know what brings us love and respect? Knowing how to relate, knowing how to listen, knowing how to connect, knowing how to be present. You can't hand someone your resume and think they're going to love you just because of what title you have or how much money you have or how you look. It may look it may impress some people in the short run, but it doesn't work very well in the long run. Wow. I just wanted to share I just wanted to share something with you when you were talking. Um, one uh, little saying come to my mind is like um, when when you label somebody or in a relationship, a partner you've been with or a friend that you've been with for a while, um, old labels fade over time. Resample yeah. what's inside we sample what's inside like an old wine change happens over time mm-hmm. yeah that's good i don't know that's yeah. kind of flowed to, flowed into me there and it, i think that's a lot of what happens with people too um you just put a label on them and expect it to be the red wine that's there and that's the merlot and it's not going to change with age but it does yes yes yeah. that, i mean that that's a good metaphor i think boyd because we begin to assume and once we start assuming we know we're into that position of certainty about other human beings. And if there's anything we know about human beings and ourselves, there's a bit of a mystery there, isn't there? For Absolutely. who we are, who other people are, and life is always filled with mystery. Once we think we know exactly, or once we pretend to know everything about another person or about issues, uh, we suffer from what I call pathological certainty. You know, it's, a, it's an attempt to feel secure based on pretending. And again, it doesn't make for maintaining long-term relationships. Right. Now, Arthur, you speak of image love in your book. What is image love? What do you mean by that? Well, image love is when you're falling in love with the resume. You're falling in love with what you see, but you don't know very much. It's, it's very similar to that early phase of love, you know, the falling in love stage where you hear, you know, people will say, oh, he's wonderful, handsome, intelligent, and, and, uh, and sensitive and compassionate. And I say, gee, I haven't met anyone who has all of those qualities. You have to introduce me to this person. <laughs> no, because when we first fall in love, we project a lot onto the person. We don't really know them very well. And, and we're in a state of image in a way. 
But for some people, that's as far as they go. They never go deeper than that. So it's sort of like looking at a picture of the ocean, a painting of the ocean, versus being at the ocean and feeling, you know, feeling the tide hit uh, some of the mist on your face. It's it's a very different experience. So when we fall in love with an image, it means we don't we're we're pretending to be an image, and we're and the other person's pretending that uh, to hold, so uphold a certain image of themselves, and neither party really knows each other. And so it doesn't go very deep and it becomes very stale very quickly. That makes sense. I am wondering how, well, I actually have my, yeah, I have a question. Yeah, I'll go into that one now. I wanted to get back to the hormones. You were talking about how we produce oxytocin, which is the love hormone. That's what the empathy brings out. And the cortisol is what the stress brings out and how we have the ability to control these. So, For most people who are dealing with high anxiety and stress in their lives, uh, so if that's me and I go to the doctor and they give me uh, medication to help with my anxiety, Mm -hmm. are those medications hindering our body from regulating these hormones? How, How is that affecting our own ability to take control how I guess what is the medication doing and and how can we make it work better or yeah still find a way to help do it on our own boy that's that's a tremendous question Rebecca and I haven't been asked that one uh, in several interviews that's an excellent question because it is a difference between what I call bottom-up learning versus top-down. When you go to a physician and you're prescribed an anti-anxiety agent, they're basically benzodiazepines like Clonopin, Valium, uh, and uh, these medications are minor tranquilizers, and they're all addictive. And you can take them sparingly, intermittently, like, like if you can't, you have trouble flying, for instance, and on occasion you take a Clonopin to fly. Okay, you're not going to get addicted because you're taking one pill to fly and one pill to come home. But if you start taking them on a regular basis for anxiety, they are tranquilizers. They do slow down your system. They do slow down metabolism. And the brain isn't learning anything. That's what I mean by top-down. The brain isn't learning anything to produce natural chemicals that are far more effective than any pill you can ever take. So... Yes, you, you might be able to take them intermittently if you're having a panic attack, but the real, the, real, um, the real problem is that you're always going to be dependent on the medication rather than learning how to slow down and produce oxytocin, serotonin, these calming neurochemicals on your own. You know, we can do this on our own if we practice making empathic connections because the the empathic connection releases the neurotransmitters dopamine which creates a sense of desire endorphins pleasure in relaxation and as i said earlier oxytocin compassion and connection it's far more effective to be able to produce it on your own and you're actually training the brain to change you know a lot of time we we hear that the brain we're hardwired well the the real truth is we're softwired our brains can change but in order for our brains to change, we have to learn from experience and to incorporate it in experience. If we're just taking a medication to reduce our anxiety, we're not learning anything. We're taking a tranquilizer to make us feel relaxed 
sort of like it would happen if you had two or three glasses of wine. But what have you learned? You're learning, your brain is learning that I need this substance to relax and calm down. What I'm recommending in this book is helping people learn how to do this on their own. Use the soul's pharmacy to produce oxytocin and these other neurochemicals because there are ways of doing it and every human being can learn how to do it. And when you do, you feel much better. You live longer, your inflammation's reduced, your anxiety's reduced, and you feel naturally closer to other people. And interestingly, you know, I have a chapter in the book on giving and generosity because when we give, we get more back. And it makes us, these hormones make us want to give more. They make us want to go out in the world and be of service to others. So it's far more important to learn how to do this on your own to make an internal change rather than using an external agent to calm you down. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about uh, your book and about your work because uh, it seems often like, well, we're just going to give you a little pill and, you know, go home and, and go away and now it's fine. But yeah. You know, people aren't addressing how to correct it themselves. So it's the symptoms, but never getting to the source, as yeah. is with many yeah. of the medications. And and yeah. more than ever before today, people are looking for a way to do things without using prescription medications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I think the medications were popular for a long time, but people have realized their limitations and also people have realized the the amount of side effects that they can bring as well. Yes. Yeah. You know, they're not innocuous substances. They 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 have side effects. Absolutely. Thank you very much for answering that question. Uh, oh, you're was, welcome. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, that was great. So we have just uh, about a minute or two left here, and I wanted you to share with our listeners how can they reach you? Uh, where do you do your private practice out of? How can they reach you online? Well, my private practice is in Hopkinton, Massachusetts, and my website is balanceyoursuccess.com. People can reach me there. You can send me an email there. Um, and I have articles that I've, I've written there, blogs, and I update them periodically. So you can get in touch me, with me through the website, or you can order the book through the website as well, balanceyoursuccess.com. Perfect. Perfect. Arthur, we just want to thank you so much for sharing the space with us today. Excellent show. Yeah, truly, well, truly thank wonderful. thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed interacting with both of you. Thanks so much. Absolutely, yes. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Arthur. To all of our listeners out there, you have been listening to Awakened Hearts. Join us next week, same time, same place. We are going to have Dr. Friedman Schwab, and we will be learning to understand, direct, and utilize our subconscious mind as our greatest ally on the path to health and wholeness. Don't miss our psychic fair on October 29th. Reiki Share and Yusui Reiki Level 1 classes are on November 5th. Have a wonderful week. From our hearts to yours, namaste. Thank you for tuning in this week to Awakened Hearts. Please join your hosts, Rebecca and Boyd Campbell, again next Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Until our next show, have an enlightened week.